This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I'll interview top scientists whose work in genomics is shaping the way we think about science and our world. I recently visited the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, or EMBL, in Heidelberg, Germany, where I met with Dr. Jan Korbel. Jan is a group leader and senior scientist in the Genome Biology Unit at EMBL. Jan combines experimental and computational approaches to unravel the determinants and consequences of germline and somatic genetic variations. Jan joined me on the Illumina Genomics podcast to discuss the kinds of research he does at EMBL. I'm a uh, group leader at EMBL that is leading what I call a hybrid lab. So we have both computational, uh, both a computational lab where we're doing bioinformatics analysis and also development of computational biology approaches to learn more about genomes. And we have an experimental component in which we're doing both methods development. So we're developing experimental methods in genomics, but also we're, we're applying experiments to follow up theories and hypotheses that develop, we develop through computational analyses, we're trying to kind of close the cycle by using um, data mining to come up with hypotheses and then later test them and hopefully prove them in the wet lab. In his unique approach of combining computational and experimental genomics, I asked Jan what kinds of hypotheses and theories he's most interested in studying. We're specializing in human genetics, and one of the areas in which we're quite interested in is, is cancer genomics. And so we're, we're mining large data sets in cancer genomics to learn more about the mechanisms that drive cancer, specifically from a genetic point of view, alterations in the genome that drive cancer. And we're trying to find new ways by which the cancer genome, specifically alterations in the cancer genome, can lead to malignant growth and then test these hypotheses in the wet lab. Jan discussed the specific types of DNA sequence variations he's interested in studying, structural variants. So we are specifically interested in what I typically refer to as structural variation, so DNA rearrangements in the genome. If we're talking about cancer, these are mostly somatic DNA rearrangements or somatic structure variations, sometimes call them SVs for structure variation. And um, we've been specializing on this variant form for quite a while. These are fairly important variants not as frequently studied as single nucleotide variants are, but they typically, whether you find them in the germline or somatically, they will typically um, lead to most varying base pairs between genomes because they are so large in size. I then asked Jan about where these structural variations might be found in the genome. Are they typically limited to gene coding regions or are they more widespread across the genome? So they're often are encoding regions and those are the ones that scientists typically look at first. Sometimes structural variations can be in intergenic regions too. And we've long wondered if they are in intergenic regions, whether they would still have a functional impact on cells. Uh, in a sense, they can occur almost everywhere in the genome. There are abundant publications describing how single nucleotide variants, or SNVs, can be important in the etiology of cancer. I asked Jan to discuss whether structural variations were also involved in cancer etiology. They are. So as a matter of fact, the cell right after we're born starts to accumulate alterations over time. And it's a process that is very slow in, in young cells, which presumably are better protected or 
can be replenished and cells that that acquire mutations might be sorted out by the body more readily than at age. Um, later at age, there'll be more of these variants accumulating and obviously each variant, each mutation that arises in a cell puts the cell at risk because the mutation could alter the genome in such a way that the cell may gain capacities to proliferate faster or to survive in contexts where it shouldn't be surviving and so on. Jan and I discussed a recent paper that he and his team published in Nature Genetics this January titled Pan-Cancer Analysis of Somatic Copy Number Alterations Implicates IRS4 and IGF2 in Enhancer Hijacking. I asked what he meant by the term enhancer hijacking. Yeah, enhancer hijacking is a process that we, we stumbled across a few years ago um, in, a, in a work that was led by a former student of mine, Thomas Sichner, with was largely with Paul Northcott, who was at that time here at the German Cancer Research Center, also in Heidelberg, um, an institution in the same town as, as EMBL. And we stumbled across this mechanism uh, a few years ago, and uh, well, the recent Nature Genetics paper that you've been alluding to, we've looked at this much more systematically than initially. But I, I should still get, go back to our earlier work. So what we found a few years ago is that there's a set of different alterations um, arising in a subtype of a uh, childhood brain tumor termed medulloblastoma. And these, these um, rearrangements that we found to be clustered um, in medulloblastoma were, had a few characteristics that made us wonder what's going on. So they were typically intergenic. They were highly diverse, focusing on a common region, which to us um, said there should be something going on. So it's likely that there's something under selection here. However, we saw quite diverse alterations, including translocations, inversions, but also deletions and duplications at a certain locus. We found that in these instances, there is one or sometimes several enhancers uh, brought into an oncogenic locus, which itself is not rearranged. So the oncogene is not rearranged, but something is brought next to it. And um, so hence the name enhancer hijacking, because these regions that are brought uh, near the oncogene have the potential to increase the expression of the oncogene by essentially mediating a 3D contact between that enhancer that gets rearranged and the oncogene. After discussing the role of enhancer hijacking in medulloblastoma, Jan described other cancers where enhancer hijacking can also play a role. In fact, it turns out that enhancer hijacking has been known for 30 years. So after, after seeing this in medulloblastoma, we were wondering whether this process occurs more commonly in tumors. And I should say, that the phenomenon of enhan enhancer being brought to an oncogene is actually an old one. In the 80s, it was already it was described in leukemia and, that, uh, uh, and also in lymphoma, actually. So that, that enhancers uh, of, for instance, of the, of the immune globulin genes can be moved through a translocation near um, the MYC gene, CMYC, and overexpressed CMYC. However, in solid tumors, this is not what scientists have been looking for. And essentially, there has been a recipe to look for what alterations have been doing from experience and uh, from early, earlier data sets and specifically from conclusive data. And so in, in a sense, uh, there was a bit of a dogma out that a deletion means, oh, there's likely a tumor suppressor gene here. And a duplication on Amplicon means there's likely an oncogene here. If you factor an enhancer hijacking, this is what we could show this is not true anymore. Jan and his team applied their combined computational and experimental genomics approach to identify a new and exciting mechanism for enhancer hijacking. We did identify 
quite a lot of deletions that appear to increase the expression of oncogenes, one of which we followed up more closely. And we also identified a previously undescribed mechanism of a tandem duplication leading to the hijacking of an enhancer by forming a new chromosomal contact domain that includes this enhancer and an oncogene. Quite, quite an exciting mechanism, we thought, which we followed up in the wet lab and, and for which we, I think, have very conclusive evidence that it indeed exists and that something like a contact domain or topologically associating domain is formed here in, the, in, in tumors. I asked Jan whether he's found evidence for enhancer hijacking through tandem duplication in many cancer types or if it's restricted to certain types of tumors. So we looked um, in a fairly unbiased fashion. We used data from the Cancer Genome Atlas project to um, assess over 20 different types of cancer. However, what I just described to you um, was uh, or is a mechanism that's confined to relatively few tumors. IGF2, an oncogene that gets activated by enhancer hijacking through tandem duplication formation, as we showed, um, does that in colorectal cancer. And um, the deletion I earlier referred to, which affects IRS4, is primarily active in some squamous tumors, including squamous cell lung cancer. So this, this um, type of event is common in different types of cancer, but by no means in all cancers we looked at. Jan and his team originally analyzed over 7,000 previously published cancer genomes from the Cancer Genome Atlas, or TCGA. Now that's a large data set, but is it large enough? I asked Jan if larger cancer genome data sets could potentially help in identifying more cancer types with enhancer hijacking through tandem duplication. That's, um, that's an excellent question. I'm very confident that we will be seeing more once we have more tumors. The reason is that not all of these alterations are, are very highly recurrent. So we do find some that show a recurrence of 10% or more meaning that 10% or more tumors of a certain cancer type show the alteration. But there's some that are rarer, that could affect only a certain subtype of the disease or only a certain subset of patients of the disease. Since the way we are mining for enhanced hijacking events requires that the event is recurrent, we're currently limited by data set size. And of course, we're also limited by tumor entity that has been studied. Uh, the TCGA has been fairly broad, but by no means has been looking at all types of cancers. So there's going to be more to be discovered. Um, we have published our uh, novel computational approach for identifying enhancer hijacking cases, which we call SESM, cis expression structural alteration mapping. It's a tool freely available. We, we're currently updating the, the GitHub site, but we've already um, received a request for sharing of the code and have begun to share the code with people. Jan then shared his views on how enhancer hijacking impacts our understanding of how cancer develops and how these structural variations might lead to new targets for cancer drug development. I think enhancer hijacking is both, both important for understanding how cancer develops plus how it could be cured. Specifically in some cancer types and subtypes, we find it to be highly common. Going back to our medulloblastoma example that we published in 2014, here we found that enhanced hijacking of two genes, their power locks, GFI1 and GFI1b, is the most common alteration in this tumor, top, in this tumor subtype, in the so-called group 3 medulloblastomas. 
So they're more, more common than MIG alterations, which were known beforehand, and they're more common than any point mutation arising in this tumor. So this means, in this tumor type, if we weren't looking for an enhancer hijacking, we just would not know which genetic alterations drive the tumor. And we might, we might come up with different hypotheses, such as, oh, it might be an epigenetic disease because we don't find genetic alterations, without excluding that epigenetic tumors um, might, might be existing and might be happening more common than we think. As long as we can still identify a strong genetic driver, we, um, we should be looking for it. His new work suggests that DNA translocations can also help to uncover new enhancer hijacking events. One piece of information that I've, I've given you so far, um, only partially, um, so leads me to what we are doing next with these data. So we so far used um, TCGA, genomic data, to look for enhanced hijacking, but um, have been, uh, in our initial analysis, restricting um, the processing to data sets where microarrays told us where copy number alterations are. So the breakpoint information we used came from microarrays. And obviously, there is now a growing resource of cancer genomes out there. We've recently collected with the Pan-Cancer Analysis of Our Genomes Project, that's a collaboration between the ICGC and, and its sub-projects, which in this case includes the TCGA. We've been collecting over 2,800 cancer genomes, many of which have expression data. This is, of course, exciting for us because it means we can extend the search for enhanced hijacking events beyond um, copy number imbalance structure variation, so be beyond deletions and, and duplications. We're now also looking for inversions and translocations. And since we're still performing analysis, I won't give you too many details, sure. but we do find um, translocations are quite informative uh, for uncovering new enhancer hijacking events. Jan and I then discussed some of his biggest challenges in performing his research in genomics. The biggest challenges, that's it's an interesting question. So. So the analysis of the data, specifically of data that is as sensitive as a cancer genome, is becoming a major bottleneck. And we're currently, when we're talking about 2,800 cancer genomes, we are um, thinking about how can we access data that comes from different consortia, from different countries, where the rules and regulations on how data is supposed to be shared and redistributed differ, and where the data is typically not all in one place. Uh, so we're thinking about clouds, we're thinking about finding interoperable algorithmic solutions to process data that doesn't reside in one place. And this is now becoming our biggest challenge. I asked Jan if he had any advice for younger investigators who might be interested in working in genomics and cancer research. Yeah, so I'm, look closely what's, what's out there, look closely which groups are doing innovative work. Also think early whether you would want to work more on mechanistic problems, on basic biology questions, or whether you would like to use cancer genomics to, to diagnose and treat. There's now the field is, is almost dividing now with um, a sizable fraction of the field really moving into clinical translation and, and others still working out mechanisms and basic biology with the data. Um, yeah, ask yourself these questions. Look for whether institutions have access to valuable data sets, whether they have access to the necessary infrastructure to produce, but also to analyze the data. Well, that's all for now. Be sure to follow our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. I'll be back next time with another interview on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.